Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the podcast of the Yiddish Book Center. I'm Lisa Newman, and I'm visiting today with Tina Wasserman. Tina is the author of the highly successful cookbook, Entree to Judaism, A Culinary Exploration of the Jewish Diaspora, and the equally lauded Entree to Judaism for Families. Trained in nutrition and education, she received a BS from Syracuse University and an MA from New York University's. Tina's articles and recipes have appeared in the New York Times, Jewish Daily Forward, and Jewish publications all over the United States. In addition to her writing, she travels around the country as scholar-in-residence at synagogues, JCCs, and universities, giving talks and demonstrations about Jewish culinary traditions. We were lucky enough to have Tina present a challah baking workshop here at the Yiddish Book Center this past August. Welcome, Tina. Hi, how are you, Lisa? Well, thank you. Um, it's been a little bit since we last spoke. I just wanted to say that your presentation at the center was wonderful. Not only the baking demonstration, which I've taken um, good care to uh, work on my culinary uh, holla baking <laughs> skills, um, and with great success, thanks to your tricks. Um, good. But I also loved hearing you talk about the Jewish cuisine, tra- you know, the traditions, and I wondered if you on this visit with us today would share a little bit about Jewish traditions and the upcoming Hanukkah holiday. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I I find it very interesting when I look at the recipes that are traditionally made, you know, and of course I, you know, made my latkes this year. As a matter of fact, I had my husband schlep them in a suitcase along with 30 other pounds of food, uh, for Thanksgiving this past <laughs> week, well, every, the whole, we brought the whole family out to Los Angeles, where one member of the family lived. So I, you know, I had to have some of the food made in advance. Uh, so, but when I make the foods, I also think about what was going on at the time that they were created. You know, it was so. The que- the big question when I uh, when I'm lecturing and I say okay well here are the traditional foods for Hanukkah why are what do we eat for Hanukkah and they go oh latkes I go okay fine They're, you know forgetting the rest of the Jewish world but we explain later on and I will to you as well and I go why and they go oh because the oil lasted eight days I go yeah okay now. If that's true, how come most of the Jewish world doesn't even worry about the oil? And did that story really occur, or did, was it mythology that helped teach the story of Hanukkah? And then, of course, nobody has the, the correct answer for that. And then I go, okay, uh, why do we really have latkes? And everybody looks at me like, well, you know, the, we just said the oil. I go, uh-uh. And I think what yeah, one has to do is then look at the ingredients, look at the lifestyle, and look at history. And the bottom line is that, in, well, Hanukkah is celebrated in December, especially in Europe, because of the, the barbarians used to have a winter um, holiday, and they were, it was almost like a bacchanalia, and they were carrying on, and I always say, you know, and they were looking around and saw this house that wasn't doing anything and said, oh, yeah, maybe we ought to pillage them. You know, (laughs) let's steal everything from their house, burn their house down, whatever. So I think that part of the reason that it's celebrated in December was 
the holiday itself was because, not only because of possibly Hasmonean calendar, but also because that was going on, and here was a perfect time to celebrate how a small group of people fought the mighty and survived. So, okay, it's in December. Well, what else is going on in December? What else is going on in December is that starting in September, the geese were being fattened. I actually found a recipe for the for the little pellets, how to make pellets to feed your geese. And they start, and don't worry, that's not going to be in any one of my cookbooks. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> it's not necessary. But the bottom, although I feel like somebody gave me pellets constantly this last week. But in any case, what they did was that literally there was a recipe that said after you make them, you give them three times a day, three or four each time, and then you increase it to seven, eight times a day and ten pellets at a time. The idea was that they were fattening the geese to create a very fatty liver. Uh, and, and so as a result, the and that was, by the way, that was a very good thing because it was the Jews that were really responsible for the foie gras industry in France. But Separate and apart from that, you're fattening up this geese, and come December, the geese were being slaughtered. They were slaughtered. Their, their down and their feathers were used for warmth. Their meat was made into a confit so that they had meat, preserved meat, for the cold winter months. And then they, had, they rendered all their fat because the oil, the goose fat, was actually what was the cooking oil, was the cooking medium for the for the whole year but if you're having a celebration and you have this fresh you know pure or rendered oil and you've got you can always find a potato and you can always find an onion no matter how poor you are then why not make potato latkes mm-hmm so that's really why we have the potato latkes in December but what people need to understand is uh, Rashi in the te- in the 11th century was not making potato latkes. Potatoes weren't introduced into Europe uh, from the New World until the 14 the 1500s, and at first they weren't being eaten at all because they were afraid it was part of the nightshade family and they thought it was poisonous. Right. And then and then what happened is they fought, they saw that it wouldn't kill the animals so it was used as feed for the for the animals. Then it was used as feed food for prisoners. And then it was used as food for the poor. And we all know that by the 17th century and the 18th century you know, the, the Jews were living in the Pale of Set, you know, for the most part, not all over Europe, obviously, but we had a large proportion were not wealthy. And therefore, it was a perfect food for celebrating the holiday. So that's the real, the real backstory to, uh, <laughs> to, to latkes. So latkes really weren't that popular until the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century. And, and as a matter of fact, when I was researching the history of kugels for my family cookbook, I, I found that potato kugel was probably was the last in the line of kugels that was ever created, and that wasn't didn't become popular until about 1815. Wow! One of my questions for you um, 
mm-hmm. was in the family cookbook, you have the sweet potato carrot latkes, which is, again, not yes. something that I'm familiar with. And I wondered if you can talk a little bit about the roots of that recipe. Yes, the roots of that recipe are Tina Wasserman and the United States' uh, preoccupation with gluten. <laughs> Honest to goodness. What, you know, Not the answer I was expecting. <laughs> I know it wasn't the answer. But you see, that's what's really important because other than matzah, okay, mm-hmm. we don't have, there's no dictate that a food had to be served for a particular holiday. It was what was, you know, what was sustainable, what was readily available at that season. And, and that's why, by the way, in the children's book, even though I don't say it, I did it by season. I didn't do it by holiday. I plugged the holidays into the season. Right. You know, it's because it, we, we're trying very hard to look at what is sustainable and what is readily available. So here I was, uh, you know, so, and that's why I told the story initially about the potatoes, because that's what was, and the, and the goose oil, that was what was readily available at the time. Um, and so uh, I was looking at recipes, and I'm actually working on uh, an, another book about uh, all of the different I, – I don't want anybody who has a food allergy to be left out from tradition. So that was one of the first recipes that I had created. Um, I actually created a sweet potato soup gagnote that's also um, that's gluten-free that's in uh, uh, reformjudaism.org published this past week um, that I had done a while ago. But So I was looking at it. Let's look at what's healthy. Everybody's thinking about healthy. Let's look at something that's not necessarily, you know, that's loaded with vitamins and that doesn't have gluten in it. But then I said, you know, to myself, well, let's look at something else related to Judaism, and that was the Ethiopian juice. And I took all the spices that are readily available in, and all, all the combinations that are readily available in Ethiopian cooking. So there was the garlic, and there was the, and there was teff, and the, you know, and I'll explain what that is in a second. You know, and and um, a little bit of the the cinnamon, but the, you know, the the spices, the berber spice that would make it not spicy but tasty. And so I created carrot, took the carrot and the sweet potato, and I recommend that you use teff, which is not easily available all over, but ground flaxseed is, both of which are gluten-free, and bind it together. And I made these, these latkes because they were fried in oil, telling the story of Hanukkah, they were gluten-free, allowing people who couldn't have gluten to celebrate the holiday. You know, I mean, now it's much easier because you could, especially after this last Passover, you can find gluten-free matzah meal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's binding agent might have been different, but I wanted to keep it true to Ethiopian cooking. So that's why I did it that way. So um, where do you find your recipes? Um Sometimes, uh, well, I research old cookbooks, and then I get ideas for 
what could make it contemporary? You know, it's uh, there are many. Uh, you know, obviously, if a recipe it wouldn't, but if a recipe called for canned peas, there's no way I would do that. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying. Right, if it was right. older, but I look at I look at old old cookbooks. I look at tradition. I look at international cookbooks. I look at international uh, for Passover. I did, a, and you can do it for the holidays, entertaining holidays now. Uh, there's my Persian cuckoo, K-U-K-U. And um, I did one with cauliflower, and I go, oh, yeah, but I like the raisins in the pine, you know. So I added some raisins to it, and it's basically like a frittata. But it's it's Persian. And, yes, it's Persian, but we know that Jews lived in Persia. So it was it was a way to connect people. My goal is to have people think outside of the box when it comes to Jewish cooking. In other words, my talks are usually called Beyond Brisket and Bagels because I don't want people thinking that Jewish cooking is only Eastern European cooking. Right. I mean, there's definitely a Sephardic influence. And I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that, how the diaspora informs our culinary traditions. Oh, absolutely. And then I'll tell you what the what the the other part of the Jewish world makes for Hanukkah, because it's not potato latkes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's a different story, but it still works. Um, so basically... I look at Jewish culinary tradition really from starting in the year 711, but truly from 1492. But 711, the Moors came to Spain, conquered Spain, and they brought with them the foods that they knew and loved from all over the world. And they introduced those foods to Spanish culture and to the Spanish community, and of course there were a lot of Jews living in Spain. Well, and for the most part, the Jews and the Moors, you know, uh, got along. So they learned from it. In the same way, you don't have to be Italian, but if you have an Italian neighbor and she makes a terrific lasagna and you happen to keep kosher, you figure out how to make that lasagna substituting the pork or the meat for maybe mushrooms or something like that, but you like what she's making and you adapt it. And that's what our ancestors in Spain did. But then in 1492, they were expelled. And what I try to point out to people is we think 1492, oh, there were a lot of Jews there. Maybe there were 40,000 Jews or something. No, there were 200, there were actually 500,000 Jews, but 250,000 Jews left Spain in a three-month period. And where did they go? Well, they went, uh, some of them did go across the Atlantic and went to Recife in Brazil and started the whole population of the the New World, you know, uh, slowly, obviously, but th- that was the beginnings. And then, uh, and, and some did go to Amsterdam and some went across the Pyrenees to uh, to France. And, of course, they went to North Africa. That's why you had a large Jewish population in Tunisia and uh, and Libya and Algeria and, of course, Morocco. But what people don't realize is they also were invited by the sultan to come to the Ottoman Empire. And in that case, and, and he said, I will make your lives good. I will bring you into communities because he knew that Jews needed to live in communities, not ghettos. But they needed to live in communities. 
because they needed the communal oven, they needed their showcase, they needed their their burial, you know, um, grounds. So uh, that's why you see a large Jewish community was in Izmir and in Constantinople, otherwise known as Istanbul, and, of course, in Aleppo which breaks my heart every time I see what's going on there because aside from there not being any Jews, you know, what's, it's, it's, the culture is uh, really being um, eviscerated. But then you've got, you know, we don't think about it, but Bulgaria was Sephardic. Jews in Bulgaria spoke Ladino. They did not speak Yiddish. Romania was part of the Ottoman Empire. So many parts of Romania were under that influence and, and were the Spanish Jews came there. And you and and most of Greece was part of the Ottoman Empire. So the Jews went there and they brought that which they knew. And so a lot of like the spread of eggplant and I talk about this in my first book. I do I, I joke, I said I have a whole chapter on eggplant. Why? Because I love eggplant and I wrote the books. So I can <laughs> put anything I want in there. But really the reason was as I as I was researching, I grew up with my grandmother made patra gel. She was Romanian. And that was basically smoked eggplant where you took the the meat was was soft and 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 you mashed it up and then you added a little garlic or in Romanian's case a lot of garlic and and salt and pepper and a little olive oil and you know with sometimes sugar depends on what region of Romania you were from people I know that people are listening but but I also noticed that that same technique in Greece used yogurt well, hello, yogurt, they, they, they had a lot of dairy products there. Mm-hmm. In Turkey, it was using tahini, and people know baba ganoush, because right. it's really the same dish. But in Syria, they didn't use tahini, they used pomegranate molasses, and the same garlic and olive oil and salt and pepper. So the point is, you see how a dish that was common, not traditional, but, you mm-hmm. know, common adapted to the regions that the jews were living in and so i really think that that really 1492 and the expulsion of the jews had a significant impact on world cuisine because they you know and and i use this the example when i'm when i speak you know when i moved to dallas from new york 35 years ago i was used to the bakeries in the New York area, always putting a sign up in the window, place your teglach orders now, you know, for Rosh mm-hmm. Hashanah. And I came down to Dallas, and I found very few people who even knew what teglach was. So I taught, you know, how to make teglach. And then I was about 15, 20 years ago, I was invited to the JC, well, must have been 15 years ago. I don't know how old the Manhattan JCC is, but they invited me to come and teach. And what did they invite me to teach? Fajitas. Because <laughs> I was coming from Dallas, so it really, um, you know, that's how food food travels. Right. So, you know, let me. May I tell story oh, about the story about? Absolutely, please. Okay, so the Sephardic Jews make cheese pancakes or cheese latkes, not because it's fried in oil, because it isn't, and they do it based on the story of Judith. And Judith was a heroine, a Jewish heroine, who heard that Holofernes 
was coming with his, General Holofernes was coming with his armies to annihilate her community. And so I always joke she must have put on a sexy dress, but she went with salty cheese and a pitcher of wine to Holofernes's tent. And she gave him some wine, and he was, gave him some cheese, and it was salty, so he needed to drink, and he drank some wine, and he got a little hungry, so he ate some, ate some more cheese. I always say, this is why bars have pretzels and peanuts, because <laughs> if it's salty, you drink more. Anyway, he eventually got so drunk, he fell asleep. She cut, According to myth or storyline, she cut off his head, put it on the top of a spear, went out of the tent, scared his army away, and saved the Jews. Now... It is essentially the similar story to Judah Maccabee, you know, fighting, right. the, you know. And, uh, and I think that the reason we don't tell that story in, in Hebrew school is obvious. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a little mm-hmm. scarier for the kids. It's easy to talk about the vial of oil. But the bottom line is that's why cheese pancakes are, are often made. And so... I have a recipe, and as a matter of fact, I'm teaching at the HUC in Cincinnati next week, and I'm, I've am i got the rabbinic students making three types of uh, latkes, the two we've mentioned, and then these cheese, the lemon ricotta pancakes. So they're very delicate, and they can be used at any time during the year, but it's a way of incorporating our stories and our heritage into our food. Our stories are recipes, and our recipes are stories. Well, well said, Tina. Um, and then these stories are great. One quick last question for you. What's, sure. what's on the menu for the holiday? Oh, well, <laughs> actually, um, I'm going, I'm invited out. <laughs> and, but, but generally, it's always... Um, my recipe, they always say, oh, but I'm making your latkes. And it's okay, good. <laughs> you know, um, uh, my family, my children are grown. And I just, as I said, that's why I did latkes with them. I've got one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. And so uh, not having young children or grandchildren here to to entertain, my everybody knows that I'm the Rosh Hashanah person. And I let everybody else, to, and, and Pesach. But I let everybody else take the other holidays. So my menu is, um, in my mind, is definitely, it's a question of whether or not, okay, here's how, how one plans a menu. Do you like your latkes with applesauce or do you like your latkes with sour cream? Because if you like your latkes with applesauce, you can have brisket as your main dinner. If you like your latkes with um, sour cream, Growing up, uh, you know, when, when my kids were little, it was a dairy meal. Mm-hmm. So I would make latkes, and we would have tuna fish salad and egg salad, and, you know, it would just be a and, – and salad salad, and we would just have a, a big spread of, um, of uh, dishes that way and, and serve it, you know, and serve the latkes as our main course. I'm probably not – as helpful as you would like me to have been, but I'm t- I don't enter. T- I mean, you know, that's what I would do. Right. Well, Those would be my two choices. Well, we'll definitely visit with you on other holidays because I know you have great menu ideas, um, and you've certainly left me hungering <laughs> uh, for all of the above that you've talked about. Um, quickly before I let you go, um, will mm-hmm. you share your website address with our listeners? Yes, absolutely. It's uh, cookingandmore.com, 
and I um, really recommend that you look at it now or look at uh, find me on Facebook because we don't have time here, but I have certain hints for how to guarantee that your latkes are not gray, are not greasy, and are not thin. And if you can use your own ingredients uh, based on your own recipe, you know, in proportions. But if you follow my tips, then I guarantee you your latkes will come out perfect this year. And you can even make them in advance. And can I say that fast? Do we have a second? Sure. Okay. Never, ever, ever refrigerate your latkes. Either make your latkes earlier in the day and keep them at room temperature and then reheat them, or make them and freeze them and put them frozen on the cookie sheet and in a 425 oven until you see they're bubbly. It's when you refrigerate latkes that they absorb all the oil, and no, amount, no amount of heating will make them crisp, and all the oil will have been absorbed interiorly, so it will be, it will be greasy. Then I'm going to ask that you indulge me and answer one quick question. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, the freezing is a really good recommendation and something I hadn't thought of. Uh-huh. But if I leave them at room temperature and reheat, how do I reheat them so that they don't lose their crispiness? No, they will gain, regain their crispiness. Okay. You put them, you put them the, the a hot oven, you want a 425-degree oven, uh, unless you think your oven is a very hot oven, and then you can put it at 400. Put it on a cookie sheet, and within five minutes, they will be bubbling. Yeah, because what the the uh, exterior will then fry again in all the oil that's on there, and that will heat it up, and that will make it crisp. Thank you, because I'm always welcome. reluctant to do this for a large crowd, because I feel like you have to serve them right away. Um. Exactly. No, and then this way you can do it in advance of entertaining too. Fantastic. Well, Tina, thank you again for joining us today, um, and appreciate all. Again, for those who are listening, one more time, your website address is? www.cookingandmore.com. Great. And your cookbooks um, fly off the shelves here at the Yiddish Book Center in our bookstore and gift store. Um, thanks, and best to you. Very good holiday to you as well. Thank you so much. Thanks. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.